0: We are glad you are listening to this audio recording produced by Cross Point Presbyterian Church of Park City, Utah. For more information regarding the ministries of Cross Point Presbyterian Church, please visit us online at www.crosspointpca.org. Let me invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to use one of our pew Bibles and you can find Revelation chapter 20 on page eight hundred ninety four or one thousand and forty. As you're turning there, let me invite you to stand as we pray and read God's word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we ask that through your written word, through my spoken word, that we might come to know better your living word, our Lord Jesus. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. John writes in Revelation chapter twenty, beginning in verse one.
1: Then I saw an angel
0: coming down from heaven, and holding his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who was the devil and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit, and he shut it, and he sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. Now after that he must be released for a little while. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth. And they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. The fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Let invite you to be seated. Now, as we enter into this particular passage, let me remind you kind of of the structure of the book of Revelation on multiple occasions. John shows us the same thing from different perspectives. We said that it's a lot like the multi view camera angles that you get at a sporting event. Last night, the Cubs played the Dodgers. The Dodgers won 5-2, to two, but there was a significant play in the game in which one of the Dodgers players was tagging up on a fly ball to left field and then trying to score on the play. He tags up, the left fitter makes a catch, and he fires a perfect shot into home plate. The catcher catches the ball, applies the tag, and the umpire, after a few seconds, calls him out. They go back into the replay, and they see it from several different perspectives. And sure enough, the Cubs catcher blocks the plate. The Dodgers player never touches home. But because of a rule that says that without the ball, the catcher cannot block the path of the runner, he was called safe. But while we were waiting for the ruling, they showed the camera angle from this way, and they showed the camera angle from this way, and they showed the camera angle from this way. You got the full picture by putting together all of those images. That's what John is doing in Revelation. He's showing us... Multiple views of the same thing. Last week, we finished up Revelation 19, which carried us to the very end of human history. In that particular passage, we saw the final day of judgment and the destruction of all of God's enemies. Now John begins Revelation 20, and he goes right back to the beginning of the church age. He takes us back to that period of time, to the start of that period of time in which you and I are currently living. It's a period between the first coming of Jesus and his second coming. We saw John do this before in Revelation 11 and 12. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 18, he talks about the time for the dead to be judged. And he talks about the rewarding of God's saints and servants and prophets. This is another way that John speaks about the final day of judgment. But then in Revelation chapter 12... He takes us right back to the start of the New Testament. He gives us this picture of a woman who gives birth to a child. And it's referring to the gospel accounts of Jesus' birth. So in Revelation 20, we're introduced by John to the idea of the millennium. And the millennium is just a thousand years. It comes kind of from the Latin root to mean a thousand years. This is the only place in the Bible where the millennium is mentioned. It occurs six times over the course of these first ten verses. Now, there are three different views among Christians about what the millennium is or how it's going to unfold and take place. They're categorized in the categories of pre-, post-, and all millennialism. In all three categories, even though there are some differences, there is major agreement on the significant issues. Every single one of the perspectives on the millennium holds that Jesus is reigning both now and in the future. That he's going to come once again at some undetermined point that we do not know in the future. And that will be good news for the church because he will defeat his enemies and his people will be provided for, protected, and preserved until he takes them to the presence of God the Father. So what then are the differences in these individual perspectives? Well, the premillennialist. View believes that the return of Christ happens before this a 1,000-year reign. And this is designated by the use of the prefix pre. This means that the return of Christ comes before. That's the significant difference between premillennium, post- and amillennialists. Pre says the return of Christ happens before. Both postmillennialists and amillennialists believe that Jesus comes after this period of time. He returns or comes for the second time after the millennium. Both of these views understand that the millennium is not something that's going to happen at some point in the future, but the millennium is happening right now. You and I are living in this thousand years that John is talking about. One pastor says that the difference between these two, and amelienists, is just kind of their understanding of the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world during this particular time. post they see that the millennium is a time where the kingdom of God is growing and the, kingdom of, the kingdoms of this world are shrinking. The all millennialist view says, no, the kingdom of God is growing, but evil is growing as well. The kingdoms of this world are growing. So there's two different perspectives of what's happening. The post-millennials think the kingdom of God grows, the kingdom of this world shrinks until Jesus finally comes and everything is put in place the way he intends to be. All-millennials said that they're both growing at exactly the same time. The parable that Jesus says about the weeds that are thrown into the field, and he says, Don't cut them down, just let them grow all at the same time. Then we'll cut them down at the end, and we'll separate them that away. That comes to mind with the Omelene's view. Now, while there were some early church leaders who were advocates of the pre-millennialist perspective, this is really a view of Scripture that has gotten popular in the last 50, 60, 75 years. So, personally, I believe that you and I are living. In the millennium right now. If you were asked asking me which camp I belong, I would say I'm in the millennialist camp. I believe that the thousand-year period that John writes here is a figurative description of history and not a literal thousand years to be calculated. Now, what we see in this passage is that during this millennium, two significant events take place. The first happens in the first, three cha- the first three verses of this chapter, in which we see that Satan is bound. He's placed in a pit, and it's sealed, and it's secured by this angel. The second thing we see happens in the verses 4 through 6, and those take place in heaven, in which the saints, the martyrs, the people of God, live and reign with Christ. So I think this is a figurative description of what John's trying to communicate. So if it's not a literal period of time, how are we to interpret it? Once again, we have to remember that this is apocalyptic literature. And so it deals with things in symbolic and figurative ways. We've seen this in the past with the use of the 24 elders. We said that the 12 tribes of Israel... The 12 apostles, you take 12 and 12, you add it together, you get the number of 24. It just means the redeemed people of God throughout all of history. We saw the same thing when John sees 144,000. Remember we said you take 12 times 12, 144, multiplied by 1,000, which is a number of just fullness, abundance, completeness, and you get the number 144,000. And it represents the redeemed people of God from every tongue, tribe, and nation because the next thing that John sees is this great multitude that no one can count. So the emphasis is not on the number, but on the fullness, the completeness of God redeeming those he's chosen in Christ Jesus. So you take the number 10, which is usually... In the Bible, associated with completeness, then you multiply it by 10 as a way of enhancing it. Then you multiply it by 10 again, and it's a way of enhancing it even more. Have you ever seen that movie, A Christmas Story? You remember Ralphie and his friends out on the playground decide to dare their friend, I think his name was Schwartz, to put his tongue on the flagpole. He's like, oh, I'm not doing that. I'm like, okay, we double dog dare you, we triple dog dare you. And they enhance the dare until finally he has no choice He has to do it. It's the same thing. John's saying the number of thousand is just the completeness times the completeness times the completeness. It's just a way of intensifying the number so that you get what he's trying to communicate. John is communicating with words what he saw. And he's trying to impress on us the meaning of what is taking place. One person translated it this way, that a thousand years could be replaced with... Until God determines that it's complete, not a thousand, not a literal thousand years, but until God has determined that this is complete. And the activity they said to do is to replace that number a thousand years with this phrase, until God determines that it is complete. This is what you come up with. Satan is bound and in the abyss until God determines that it's complete. The devil is not able to deceive the nations until God determines that it's complete. The martyrs, they reign with Jesus, their savior, until God determines that it's complete. They will be priests with God until God determines that it is complete. That's what John is trying to communicate, that God is sovereign over history. He begins this chapter with the vision of an angel who comes down from heaven and he's holding, John says, a key in his hand. And this key is the key to a bottomless pit and he has a great chain. John then sees this angel. He seizes the dragon. He lays hold of him. And as if there was any question, John goes on to explain. He uses all of the names for the devil in this particular passage. He says, the serpent, the dragon, the devil, Satan. Because he wants us to be clear exactly who and what he is talking about. Now this event, the seizing of Satan, takes place at the beginning of the millennium. The binding of Satan... The limiting of his power and authority is clear from this particular passage. And John emphasizes this by saying he lays hold of him, he binds him with a chain, and then he puts him in a pit and he shuts and he seals the pit. So God is limiting the power of Satan. Now in various places in the New Testament, we're told that the limiting or the destruction of demonic powers and authorities in this world was accomplished through the death of Christ on the cross. So what John is showing us here is that God in his sovereignty has limited the power of Satan to be at work in the world. Now that doesn't mean that he's a total non-entity. That he's not a force to be reckoned with and taken seriously. He is still active during this period of time. But God has limited the scope of his power and his influence. John tells us the reason that Satan is bound is so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. So that's the way the devil works as he deceives. He's a serpent that appears in the garden who deceives Eve. He's continued that work of deceiving ever since. Now there are some who believe what John is saying is that it lies within Satan's power to deceive people, to blind their minds in such a way that they would never believe the good news, and to do it on a broad scale so that no one would ever come to faith in Christ. No one would ever hear and believe the gospel. But if this is the case, then what John is saying is that God is limiting his power to do that. But this is a time of missions for the church. This is a time in which the gospel will go forward and God will redeem and rescue and receive his people to himself. So he's limiting the scope of Satan's power to blind the elect. Others see the binding of Satan representing the sovereign control and the restraint of the devil by Jesus. He, presents, he prevents him from deceiving the nation's whole The idea is that Satan wants to deceive the nations into uniting in this force that will persecute and attack the church under the leadership of the Antichrist. This restraint is related to a passage that's found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which we see that the man of sin, the wicked one, will be revealed when God chooses it. So Satan wants to unite and kind of bring this to a head, but God says, when I decide that it's the time, that's when he'll be revealed. Satan wants to deceive and whatever you conclude in this particular chapter about what his power being limited to, it's clear that he's a deceiver. And that his limited power is focused on the nation. So as individuals, we need to take serious that we have an enemy out there. Peter says that he's like a lion who's going around looking for a victim to devour and to destroy. One of the reasons why I think deception is such a scary and terrifying thing is that you don't know you're being deceived until after the truth has been revealed. When you're being deceived, you don't know it. That is what's so dangerous. Deception works because you don't know you're being deceived. There's a story of, you know, with all the news about Confederate statues being torn down. I was like, found this story. In 1864, General Nathan Bedford Forrest was leading his band of troops north from Decatur, Alabama. All the way to Nashville, Tennessee. But in order to get to Nashville, he had to defeat a Union army that was encamped in Athens. The Union commander, Colonel Wallace Campbell, refused to surrender and let the troops pass through. So Forrest, he invited him for a personal meeting. He asked if he would come and meet face to face and... Wallace Campbell agreed to that, and so what Nathan Bedford Forrest did was he took him to all these different encampments, and he showed him, and they counted the troops, the artillery, and the weaponry they had, and he said, "Okay, let's go to the next encampment." And as they were traveling to the next encampment, the soldiers would pack up everything, tents, weaponry, every single thing, and we moved to a new location. Nathan Bedford Forrest would take uh, Wallace Campbell there; he would count all those soldiers, all those weapons. They pack up, they do the same thing, and we got to the end. He concluded that the forces of the Confederate Army were so great that he could never win, and so he surrendered. You cannot trust what you see. You can't trust what you feel. You can be sincere in what you feel, but you can be deceived even by yourself. Hudson has recently started participating in Civil Air Patrol. We go every Thursday night uh, down to Salt Lake, and we meet with uh, his squadron, the Thunderbird Squadron. We do different things. One week we talk about character development. One week we do physical training. Another week we do aerospace uh, education, which was what we did this last Thursday. And so uh, this gentleman, he came in, he started talking to us about the principles of flight. And we got onto the topic of flying by instruments alone and trusting your instruments. And he, bra- he raised the story of John F. Kennedy, Jr. Uh, many of you are familiar. He, he, his wife, and his sister-in-law, I think, all died in a plane crash. And what they believe happened was that there was limited visibility, and he started in a slow turn. And after about 20 or 30 seconds, the, the mechanisms in your body to allow you to sense equilibrium, they readjust. And so after a minute or two minutes, he no longer realized that he was in this turn, and he was losing altitude and losing altitude. And because he was such an inexperienced pilot, he didn't have the discipline to say, I have to trust my instruments, not what I feel. And it ultimately cost him – His wife and his sister, all their life. He was sincere. I think he he wasn't trying to crash the plane. He felt like he was flying uh, level. But he can't, you can't, I can't trust what we feel. Because we can be deceived. So we have an enemy that's at work. We have an enemy that wants to deceive. But the message of Revelation 20, the message of the millennium, is a message of comfort. God is sovereign. God binds Satan. God loses Satan. In effect, what Jesus is saying, he's saying, you're only going to do what I allow you to do. You're only going to be at work because it accomplishes my purposes. He's not going to let the enemy destroy the church. But then at some point in the future, John says he's released. At some point, he's able to marshal this unified force that will be on the attack against the people of God. Someone, it's interesting, Some leaders, some groups will be energized by the devil in order to persecute the church. We see it happening in little pockets, but this seems to be kind of a global kind of persecution that the church will experience. John says, going on, I saw these thrones in verse four. And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or its images and not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life. They reigned with Christ for a thousand years, but the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. And blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So who are these groups that Jesus sees? He says, I saw thrones. Obviously, Jesus is at the center. He is in the place of of priority and prominence. But he says there are other people. He says there are a group of people who are reigning with him. Two ways he describes it. The souls of those who have been beheaded. And then there are those... Who do not worship the beast or its image. So the first group are the martyrs. Those men and women who have lost their lives for their commitment to the glory and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hear stories, maybe you get updates about the persecution that goes on around the world. But our brothers and sisters, there are some of them who literally today will be imprisoned. Their homes, their resources may be confiscated by governments. Some of them may lose their life. This is a reality taking place. In the world, and so John says, I see those who have been beheaded, the martyrs, who died for the testimony of Jesus. He said, "There's another other group who had worship, who had not worshiped the beast or its image, and who had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands." Now, this is just simply describing what it means to be a Christian. Remember, we said that the groups are identified; they're marked. Hudson is doing uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and he has his little belt, and his name's written on there, Hudson P. So that way, when it comes off, somebody can pick it up, and they go, oh, this belongs to Hudson. Well, the beast puts his mark on his people, and God seals and puts a mark on his, so that people can be identified. They belong to God. So that's what it's saying. It's just referring to what it means to be a Christian. But then John has these interesting phrases like, they came to life. Now, I, I... I don't think this is referring to the bodily resurrection that's going to happen at some point in the future. And I think the reason for that is that it's referred to as the first resurrection, implying that if there's a first resurrection, there will be a second resurrection. I think that second resurrection is referring to the bodily resurrection in which the dead in Christ will rise. There's also this blessing that's pronounced upon those who receive or who share in that first resurrection. He says, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. So what I understand this first resurrection to be is when God brings us to life out of the deadness of our sin. Paul says in Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and your sin, but God made you alive in Christ, with Christ. I believe that's what this first resurrection is referring to. It's describing the life of Christians in this period of the millennium. This period of time that will come to the end when God determines that it's complete. Now, the last four verses of this particular passage tell us what takes place at the end of the millennium. All of this takes place right before the return of Christ for the second time. Satan is released from this this prison. He will be allowed to deceive the nations, and he takes full advantage of it. Since his ultimate enemy, Jesus, cannot be conquered, he turns all of his rage and destruction towards God's people. He attacks, and these armies, these forces are gathered to destroy the people of God. And things look bleak. The forces are significant that oppose the church, but then God answers, and fire from heaven falls. God's enemies again are ultimately defeated. Jesus is at both times the lamb and the lion. In this particular age, he's reigning as the Lamb, the one who defeats his enemies through giving himself as a sacrifice for your sin, for my sin on the cross. But in the end, he's the lion, and he lets loose. And he ultimately destroys his enemies forever. The Millennium teaches us, you and me, that no matter how fierce the persecution gets, the church will not be destroyed. Even in this little season in which Satan is released, God will ultimately triumph. He will provide for, he will protect, and he will preserve his people and get them safely home. Let's pray.